Before we pray, I wanted to speak to any parents who are here who have your kids with you. Wanted to let you know we're going to be in Genesis 39 this morning. That's where Joseph says no to Potiphar's wife. So we will be talking about sexual sin and pornography in particular. None of it will be graphic. All of it will be very appropriate for any child who is at danger, at risk of being exposed to pornography, which statistically speaking is now like mid-elementary school. So if your kids are that old, they, they need to be hearing this. But if you have younger kids with you who aren't ready for that yet, then feel free to slip out while I'm praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. As we talk about a a heavy sin that that for many of us makes us feel ashamed and guilty, we thank you that we can come before you knowing that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. We praise you and thank you that Jesus died to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future, the small sins, the big sins, even the sins that we don't want anyone to ever know about. He paid for all of them and we praise you for that, Lord. We say hallelujah to you that you have given us eternal life, you have forgiven us, and you have cleansed us through Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray this morning as we look at the topic of sin, Lord, we pray that we would learn from Joseph's success. He overcame. We we pray that you would help us to learn from him and to have greater and greater victory in our lives over all sin. Please, Lord, make us more like Joseph and ultimately more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can turn to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. So the next three weeks, we'll be looking at Joseph. We'll be studying his story. I have to admit, it's huge relief to get to to Joseph at this point in the book of of Genesis after spending four weeks on his dad, Jacob, because Jacob was a mess, total mess, really awful guy in so many ways. Joseph is so much more righteous than his dad. Joseph is actually one of the most righteous men you will find anywhere in the Bible short of Jesus Christ. Incredibly righteous man because he resisted temptation throughout his his whole life. Incredibly difficult temptations Joseph consistently resisted. He consistently said no to sin. And, And because he was willing to say no to sin, God used Joseph to change the world, very literally. Joseph is, is actually one of the greatest saviors in the history of the world short of Jesus Christ. He, he'll end up saving his whole family that becomes the nation of Israel. He'll save them all from starvation. So if, if we didn't have Joseph, then the Bible would have ended in Genesis and would have been really depressing. So Joseph, huge man, really changes history. But not only does he save the Jews, he ends up saving all of the Egyptians too, the most powerful nation on earth at that time. He saves them from starvation and introduces them to the one true God. So in Joseph, what we learn is that God can use one believer who's willing to say no to sin to change the world. One single believer who will say no to sin can be used by God to rescue countless lives, literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people like Joseph did. God can use you to change the world for eternity, to change the world for good if you will learn from Joseph how to resist three common temptations we all face. And that's where we're going over the next three weeks. Today we'll look at Joseph learning to resist the temptation to give in. Next week, we'll see him resist the temptation to give up, and the week after that, we'll see him resist the temptation to get even. 
If, if you can learn from Joseph how to resist those three common temptations we all face, then God can use you to rescue countless lives and to change this world for the better. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at, at Joseph resisting the temptation to give in. In, in chapter 39, he resists the temptation to, to give in to a sinful desire, some physical craving. And what we learn from him would apply really to, to any temptation to give in. So the temptation to give in and, and eat too much or drink too much or spend too much, the, the temptation to give in and covet what other people have, the temptation to be lazy, a whole lot of different temptations that you could put under this heading what you learn from Joseph in the first half of chapter 39. But there's one particular temptation we're going to really focus on this morning because it's the temptation that, that Joseph faced in this chapter, sexual temptation. Now, for Joseph, the particular sexual temptation was adultery. That's what tempted him. But what we learn from Joseph as he says no to adultery would apply to any form of sexual sin. So adultery, premarital sex, lust, homosexual behavior, and pornography. What we see in Joseph today is how you say no to any of those sins. Now, let's pause for a moment and just be honest with one another. We'd really rather not talk about that. This morning at church, in a big mixed audience like this, it is uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassing, to talk about sexual sin and pornography. But we must talk about this. We must talk about it at church, because today, right now, sexual sin is eating us alive. Sexual sin is a cancer running rampant through our culture and even through our churches. Let me share a few statistics with you. What is going on in our culture and in our churches today? According to a 2009 study, 41% of marriages, in 41% of marriages, one or both spouses admit to having a physical or emotional affair. And it's about even between the men and the women who are likely to cheat. Uh, another statistic for you. By age 20, 75% of Americans have had premarital sex. It jumps to 95% by the age of 40. So most Americans have premarital sex. So lots of sexual immorality going on in our culture, but the real game changer in our lifetimes is pornography. That's what's really changed the game. Because in the past, if you wanted to really go down the, the path of sexual sin, you had to take a pretty big risk, didn't you? You had to go have sex with someone, or you had to go to a strip club or an adult bookstore. And that was risky. That, that, that could expose you. That could risk your reputation in the community. But in the last 20 years, mankind, in our infinite wisdom and technological know-how, we have created the greatest catalyst for sexual sin that the world has ever known the internet. Now you don't have to go to a strip club. You don't have to go see a prostitute. Now you can just go into your bedroom and get all the sexual sin you could ever want on this handy little screen. It's right here. We have succeeded in democratizing sexual sin so that it is available for free to any person anywhere at any time. And the statistics are therefore not surprising. It's not surprising what has happened in the last 20 years. By the most recent statistics, I can find 2009, 64% of men and 18% of women use porn weekly. So this is not on occasion, it's weekly. It's become an addiction for them. So it's, it's eating up men and women. And just so you know, those statistics are almost exactly true, whether you're talking about the culture at large in America 
or the church at large. They, they are same all the way across. Um, so it's, it's eating up our men and women, but where it's really affecting us is with our children. That's where it gets really concerning. Huge 2009 study of about 29,000 young people in America found that 51% of boys and 32% of girls have seen porn before age 13. So while they were in elementary school, they're, they're seeing pornography. And notice that's 2009 numbers. So that's before mobile phones, smartphones became ubiquitous in the hands of young people. And so those numbers, I'm sure, have gone up even more today. Because of all of this going on and our culture, it led the U.S. Department of Justice to conclude never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. Sexual sin and pornography is not worse than any other sin. But I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. Sexual sin, pornography, none, none of these sins we're talking about this morning are any worse than any other sins. They don't make you more guilty. They, they don't make you less able to serve in the church. They're not worse than other sins, but right now, today, in our culture and in our churches, this particular sin is killing us. This particular sin is threatening to sideline a whole generation of believers. Go talk to any pastor, any person in leadership in the church, and you'll hear that. It's everywhere. Every person who wants to lead is struggling with this. Every person who's serving in the church is struggling with this in one form or another, or their kids are struggling with it, or their spouse is struggling with it. It's everywhere. So because of that, my, my point this morning as we look at this sin, the reason we must look at this uncomfortable topic is because if we don't learn to resist it in our own lives, and if we don't teach our children to resist it in their lives, then sexual sin will sideline a whole generation of God's people going to sideline a whole generation of us because we're, we're so filled with this addictive sin and we're so covered and weighed down in shame and guilt that we can't get busy with the mission that God has called us to. We must address this sin. And so let's look to the example of Joseph. How did he overcome sexual sin? How did he fight back? I want you to look with me in chapter 39. Let's just read the whole account. Let's see how Joseph succeeded in resisting sexual sin. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from that time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he owned that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph." Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And now the temptation is going to begin. Verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And so she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her, be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. I want you to notice a couple things about this temptation that begins in verse 7. The first thing to notice about this temptation is that it's forceful. It's direct. It's in your face. Uh, she, she sees Joseph when it says that she looks upon him. She's looking with lust upon him. And, and so when her husband is away, she propositions him. And, and in my English Bible, she, she says, lie with me. That's much nicer than what she actually said. I'm not sure what they're doing there. In Hebrew, it's very forceful. It's two words. It's basically sex now is what she says to him. She's being in your face with Joseph. It's incredibly direct. It's a very forward woman. Potiphar's wife. So this temptation, it's forceful, it's in your face. Second thing to notice, it's incessant. It's incessant. Day after day, she seeks him out. Every day. Even when he's working, she's coming after him. So this temptation, this sexual temptation that, Jacob, that Joseph faces, it's forceful and it's incessant. So it's really exactly like what we face. Exactly like what we face today. Because we live in a world where sexual temptation is forceful, it's in your face, and it is incessant. It's everywhere. You see it everywhere. Every time you turn on the TV, go on the internet, listen to the radio, every magazine you look at, you see sexual temptation when you're checking out at the grocery store. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. It's everywhere around. It's very forceful. It's always in your face. And if it's not in your face at this moment, then it's never more than a click away. So we just have to recognize that that we, our spouses, our friends, our family, our kids, we live in a world where Potiphar's wife is always nearby. She's always there, always at the ready, either in your face or only a click away. So how did Joseph resist a temptation that was powerful and direct and incessant? Well, there's four strategies that Joseph uses in this passage. Four specific things he does that enable him to say no to temptation. So I want to walk you through this morning. That's where our sermon is going. That's that's the big idea. Four strategies that Joseph uses to say no. They apply to any temptation you face. So not just sexual immorality, but any temptation you would face. You need to practice these four strategies. I want you to learn them. I want you to practice them. And I want you to teach them to other people, especially your children. They need to know how to apply these four strategies for saying no to sin in their own lives. So the first strategy that Joseph employs to say no to sin, Joseph refuses to make excuses. Refuses to make excuses. Whenever temptation comes into your life, you will always have some excuse that you could make to give in. It's the reality of life. There will always be an excuse at hand that you could latch onto to excuse giving in. And temptation knows that. Temptation is going to try to grab hold of that excuse in your life and, and amplify it and empower it so that eventually it feels unavoidable. You have to give in. It's necessary to give in. 
Okay, so temptation is always looking for excuses. And, and Joseph certainly had some really great excuses for giving in. Really great excuses. Uh, first excuse that Joseph had is simply, my life stinks. What is Joseph in chapter 39? He's a slave. He's a slave. How did he get there? Leave your finger in chapter 39. Let's just review just for a moment. Many of you are familiar with this story, but in case you're not, look back at chapter 37. Let's see how Joseph got to where he is in chapter 39. Chapter 37, look with me, verses 3 and 4. Now Israel, that's Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So Joseph's life takes a turn for the worse because of his dad's sin. His dad, we've talked about that, Jacob, he practiced favoritism. And because of that, it turns all his brothers against them. They hate him, and so as soon as they are able, they they attack him. You see that later in the chapter, verse 23. Verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So his own brothers sell Joseph into slavery. It's taken down to Egypt, sold to Potiphar. So let's just be clear about this. Joseph is a slave in Egypt, and it's not his fault. He didn't do anything to deserve this. And in Egyptian slavery in the ancient world, there's nothing you could do to purchase your freedom. There's no way out of slavery. If your master died before you died, you were a possession. You passed down to his sons. So Joseph is a slave in a foreign land through no fault of his own, and there's nothing he can do to change it. So he has a really good excuse number one, my life really stinks. Excuse number two that Joseph could have given to sexual sin, I'm expected to say yes, because who's asking me? It's my master's wife. Potiphar's wife was an authority figure over Joseph. He was expected to do what she said. In fact, in the ancient world, slavery and immorality often went together because masters or master's wives could simply tell slaves, let's have sex now. So who is Joseph, a slave, a possession to say no to his master's wife? Okay, so it's, it's his master's wife asking him. He's expected to say yes. That was potential excuse number two. Potential excuse number three, I deserve to have a little fun. By this time in Joseph's life, he had worked really hard. Even though he was betrayed by his family and sold into slavery, he gets to Potiphar's house and he doesn't give in to self-pity. He doesn't just nurse his hurt feelings. He works really hard. He serves Potiphar well. Everything he does is blessed. And so he's promoted. He's successful because he's working so hard. So Joseph Good has said, well, I've worked so hard, even though I'm a slave through no fault of my own, surely I deserve a little fun in life. If there was ever a person in history who had good excuses for giving into sexual sin, it was Joseph. And yet he didn't. He refused to make excuses. 
And what that teaches us, what that shows us is if we want to be a person like Joseph, if we want to be a man or woman who rescues countless lives, serves the kingdom of God, changes the world for the better, we must choose to believe that there is never an excuse for sin. If there was ever an excuse for sin, Joseph had it. He didn't, so neither do we. There is never an excuse in our lives for giving in to sin. When temptation comes into your life, when it comes knocking, it is going to try to grab hold of any excuse it can find. You're going to hear all kinds of excuses running in your mind. Just like Joseph, you're going to think, my life stinks, it's hard. I've been good. I deserve a little fun. My spouse doesn't care about me. It's his or her fault that I feel this temptation. My girlfriend or boyfriend, they'll leave me if I don't give in to what they're asking. Everyone's doing it. It's not hurting them. You'll hear all these excuses going on in your mind. If you give in to that excuse, then temptation will own you. You will fall to sin. And so if you want to say no to sin, if you want to become a man or woman like Joseph, you must choose to believe that there is never an excuse for sin. You just got to make up your mind that I'm never going to give in to an excuse. I am never going to believe that sin is excusable. doesn't matter how hard my life is. If there wasn't an excuse for Joseph, there's not an excuse for us. So resist the urge to make excuses. Refuse to make excuses. That's the first strategy we learned from Joseph. First thing that allowed him to say no to sin. Second strategy that Joseph employs in this passage when temptation comes knocking. You remember God's blessings. Remember God's blessings. That's what Joseph does if you look at verse 8 again. Chapter 39, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Now, at first you might read that and think, Man, sounds like Joseph's being a little prideful. Is he trying to show off for her? What is he doing? No, what Joseph is doing in those verses is he is reminding himself how blessed he is because of God. He's reminding himself of all the good things that God has done in his life. Why is Joseph doing that? When he's tempted, why does Joseph rehearse God's blessings? Because Joseph knows in the light of God's blessings, temptation seems unreasonable. And that's where Joseph goes, because you notice he lists off all of his blessings, all the good stuff God has done, and then he asks himself, how could I do this thing? How could I possibly do it? In the light of all the good things God has done, how could I possibly sin against such a good God? Joseph understood an important lesson about temptation. The power of sexual temptation lies in the belief that we're missing out. That's really where where sin gets its power, when temptation gets its power, is in the suspicion in your heart that God has held out on you. If temptation can get you to believe that maybe God hasn't been good, that maybe life has cheated you, that maybe you really should have more than you actually do, then sin becomes not just reasonable, but but necessary. Joseph understood that when we give into ingratitude, it inflames temptation. In contrast, when we practice gratitude, it suffocates temptation. 
I don't know if you realize this, especially when, you, when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with temptation, one of the best tools you have to say no to sin is the discipline of gratitude. Gratitude is one of your most powerful weapons against temptation. When temptation comes, you simply list things that you are grateful for because as you list things that you are grateful for, it strengthens your belief in your heart and in your soul that God is outrageously good to you. And if you believe that God is outrageously good to you, then giving into sin feels unreasonable. That's how it works. It's really easy to practice. When you feel tempted to give into whatever sin it might be, simply stop and list off five things you are thankful for. Stop and list five things you're thankful for. It's best if you can list five things that somehow relate to wherever your temptation is. So if you're married and you're tempted towards sexual immorality, you stop and you list five things you are grateful for about your spouse. If you're tempted to to covet something that someone else has, a car, a house, their body, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever it might be, you simply stop and list five possessions you're grateful for that God has given you. Now, I'll give you an example from my own life. Many of you know that I have a soft spot in my heart for fast cars. So a Porsche, a Beamer, uh, my heart skips a beat when I see them. Uh, I'm coming out of a lunch place a couple weeks ago, and there was a brand new Aston Martin parked in, in the parking lot. First of all, I'm thinking, what's an Aston Martin doing in College Station? It's crazy, $300,000 car. Second thought is, wow, I want that. I want that car really bad. I feel covetousness welling up within me. So how do I fight it? First of all, I look away and I make myself list five good things God has given me. Now, now that's not like a magic bullet. It doesn't make temptation go away, but it dramatically weakens it. Because if I believe that God has held out on me, then I can't help but covet. But if instead I believe that God has been outrageously good to me, then giving into coveting, it's much less appealing. It's much less reasonable to my mind powerful weapon that God has given you to fight sexual temptation or temptation of any kind is simply to practice gratitude. Just stop and give thanks. List off five things you are grateful for that God has done for you. That is the second strategy that Joseph employs to fight against temptation. It empowers him to say no. Third strategy that Joseph uses to fight temptation, he recognizes the cost of giving in. Joseph lists the cost. They're, they're kind of embedded there towards the end of verse 9. He says, He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph is reminding himself, recognizing what it would cost him to give in to sin. First of all, you are his wife. That's the physical cost. Because what Joseph is reminding him is is this would constitute adultery. And under Egyptian law, for a slave to have sex with their master's spouse is punishable by the death penalty. So this could actually cost me my physical life. He's listing off the physical cost and then the spiritual cost. This would be a great evil against God. This would be sinful in God's eyes, even though it's my master's wife telling me to do it. So Joseph lists, he recognizes, he rehearses the cost of giving in to sexual sin. Why does he do that? Because he recognizes that temptation is always going to try to minimize the cost of giving in. 
That's how temptation works. It's, it's going to try to diminish in your mind the cost of saying yes. It's going to try to make you believe that you'll never be caught. Everyone's doing it. It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt anyone. So when you feel tempted, you never hear that tempting voice in your head whispering, just, just click on that image, go to that website, because then you'll be one step closer to becoming addicted to pornography, and that makes you one step closer to losing your marriage and ruining your children. Don't you want that? No, you, you'd never give in if temptation told you the true cost. So it never does. It lies to you. No, no one will ever find out. It's just a picture. It can't hurt anyone. Everyone's doing it, so just click it. Temptation is going to always try to diminish in your mind the cost of giving in. So you must fight back. You must recognize the true cost. You must remember and rehearse in your mind what giving in could really cost you. And so let's just do that together. Let's remind ourselves, let's rehearse together the the cost of giving in uh, to sexual sin. Let's look at that sin in particular. What are the costs of giving in to sexual sin? Well, first of all, when you give in to sexual sin, it is a great evil against God, according to Joseph. It's a great evil against God. Again, it's not that sexual sin is more guilt-inducing in God's mind. It's not worse than other sins. But, but sexual sin is, is a sin that God particularly hates. He really hates it when we give in to sexual sin. He hates it, though, not because of the reasons that most people think. God doesn't hate sexual sin because he's a prude or because he's a stickler for the rules. Now, God hates sexual sin because God so loves sex. God absolutely loves sex. He's not squeamish about it. It's not weird to him. He's not uncomfortable talking about sex. Just read the Song of Solomon. He's great with sex. He, he loves sex in marriage because it's one of the greatest gifts he's given the human race. Sex in marriage is how God takes one man, one woman, unites them as one flesh in the covenant bond of marriage. It's one of the greatest, most amazing blessings he has ever created. God loves sex. That's why he hates it when we abuse it. It grieves him when we take this incredibly good gift and we rob ourselves of the opportunity to fully enjoy it. First cost of giving into sexual sin is that it's a great offense against God. It grieves the heart of God. It breaks his heart. Because we're taking something incredibly good that he loves and we're abusing it. Second cost of giving in to sexual sin, it can lead to unintended pregnancy and disease. That is despite what you learned from the show Friends. I, I don't know if you ever thought about Friends. You have a show where, where six people have lots of casual sex for years and years and no one ever gets a disease and there's hardly ever any pregnancy. Yeah, that's not how sex works. I'm just going to trust that you guys know that. that. That's not how sex works. If there was really a group called friends who did what they did, all of them would have diseases and there would have been a lot of unintended pregnancies. Hollywood has been lying to you. If you go have adultery, if you have premarital sex, it, it leads to consequences like disease and unintended pregnancy. That's second. This is not by any means going to be an exhaustive list. Just giving you some of the most painful consequences or costs that come with sexual sin. Third, it creates addiction. This is true of any sexual sin. It's particularly true of pornography. Uh, there's a lot of studies out there. I'll just point you to the literature. Pornography works exactly actually like an opiate, like heroin on your brain. So when you give into pornography, it jacks with the rewards 
system in your brain, that reward system that God gave you to form good habits, it takes control of that to build a bad habit that becomes an addiction. It it literally rewires the neural pathways in your mind so that in the future, you more desperately need pornography and you need more of it, more severe forms of it. And so the statistics we talked about earlier, over half of men, uh, about a fifth of women are addicted to pornography. That's true in the culture and in the church, meaning they cannot say no to it. It's working just like an opiate drug on them. So you give in to sexual sin, it builds addictions so that, that sexual sin comes to own you. You can't say no to it tomorrow. All sexual sin leads down a path of addiction. Fourth cost, it destroys marriages. 41% of marriages today in America, one or both spouses have cheated, either a physical or emotional affair. It actually, it's not just adultery that can destroy marriages. Uh, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. So one partner can't stop looking at porn, that's what ends up breaking the marriage. So sexual sin, particularly pornography, it can, it can destroy marriages. It can actually begin to destroy a marriage even before you're married. That's the important thing for you who are single to hear. Pornography can have effects that last long into your married life, even if you're years away from being married. Uh, men's Health is not at all a Christian magazine, and yet even Men's Health is willing to admit what we watch becomes our definition and even our expectation of normal sex. So if you're allowing your sexuality to be defined by pornography, you are never going to have a satisfying sex life in marriage. You are having effects. You are, you are tweaking your ability to ever be able to enjoy the marriage that God has designed for you. So sexual sin, pornography, it can destroy marriages. Finally, fifth result, it supports an enslaving industry. And despite what Hollywood wants us to believe, I just want you to take it as a fact. There is no person working in the sex industry who is healthy. None of them. Now, they may not be willing to admit it, but whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, relational pain, mental pain, every person working in the sex industry is broken because it is an industry that enslaves and destroys every person it touches. And so we need to understand, when we give in to sexual sin, we are supporting an industry that enslaves and destroys everyone it touches. Now, that's obvious if you go to a prostitute or a strip club, but it's true even if you go online and you visit a free porn site. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I want you to just reflect for a moment. If you go to a free site online, you realize that site's still making money, right? You don't have to spend any money. They make money from their advertisers based on the number of people who go. So a Christian man, he goes and visits a free porn site. He feels good because it's not a paid one. What he doesn't realize, he's added one click to their visitor count. Now they get more money from advertisers so they can make more pornography, so they can enslave and destroy more people. Every time we give into sexual sin, we are choosing to support an industry that enslaves and destroys everyone it touches. So I give you these reasons, not as an exhaustive list, but just to give you fodder, to give you data that you can remind yourself, that you can rehearse in your mind when temptation comes. That's what I do. When temptation comes, I list off. This is what giving in will cost me. This is what it could cost me. And this is what it will cost other people. I just go through my list, list all the things it will cost me. Promise you, it's a lot less appealing if you will honestly list the cost. 
Temptation is constantly trying to minimize the cost of giving in. It's a lie. Fight back. Rehearse in your mind. Recognize the true cost of giving in to sin. That's the third strategy that Joseph uses in his life to help him to say no to sin. Fourth strategy that Joseph uses, the one that you see really clearly, you remove yourself from the source of temptation. Whenever possible, you just remove yourself from the source of temptation. So Joseph is going to do everything that he can to remove temptation from his life. According to verse 10, Joseph actually tried to avoid Potiphar's wife is whenever possible. He, it says he did not lie with her, that is, he did not have sex with her, but he also would not be with her. That's, he wouldn't be alone in the same room with her. For, for as long as Joseph could, he simply completely avoided Potiphar's wife. He just was never alone with her. Now, unfortunately, that wasn't possible long term. At some point, she found him. Actually, while he was working, while he's doing his job, she finds him. And, and when he was no longer able to avoid temptation, what does Joseph do? He literally runs away. Without his shirt, he just takes off. He sprints for the door. You learn something from Joseph in his examples. You look at his example. Our fourth strategy is simply remove yourself from whatever it is that's tempting you. Remove yourself from whatever it is that's tempting you. Sometimes, like Joseph, you'll be able to simply avoid temptation. So so you just, you change your environment so that you avoid whatever it is that is tempting you. So if if you're tempted when you are alone in your bedroom with the door closed with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your computer, you, you can do something about that. You take the door off its hinges, you put the door in the garage, and now you no longer can live in the environment that was tempting you. I actually heard of some college students doing that. It's a great idea. Just take your door off the hinges. You don't need a door. Now you've eliminated your your ability to have privacy where you feel tempted. Uh, If you feel tempted to overspend when you go to a store, you can fix that. Leave your credit cards at home, go get cash in the amount that you are willing to spend, and you can't overspend. You, You have eliminated your ability to give in. If you're tempted when you, uh, to covet when you read certain magazines, just throw the magazines out take all, or get rid of your subscription. If you're tempted by cable TV, cut the cable or reduce your channels. If you're tempted by the internet, this one's a little harder. Four years ago when I taught a message like this, I recommended you simply cut the internet off at home. That's gotten much more difficult. It's possible for some people, but for some of us, the internet is how we do our job or it's how we do school. But there's still a lot that we can do to limit the temptation of the internet. You can install accountability software like Covenant Eyes. It sends an accountability report to someone in your life who will hold you accountable. You can set time of day locks on your router. It's actually really easy to do. You can have somebody tech savvy do it. Have a friend or spouse set the password for you and the internet shuts off at 10 p.m. Can't do anything with it. Now that still doesn't do anything about your phone. I know a lot of people practice the habit that in their house there's just a standing rule. Every phone is turned off and put on the kitchen counter by 10 p.m. So just at some point, and now you need to do it with tablets too. So every portable device is off and on the kitchen counter. Some people actually get a little charging stand where you charge all the devices and just everybody in the house, you've got to plug in your device by 10 p.m. It's off, plugged in, and we're done. We, we remove our opportunity to take that device to our room and sin. Okay, so whenever you can, you want to do what Joseph did and avoid temptation entirely. Now that will not always work. Temptation's going to slip in. It's going to get in your face. At some point, temptation is going to come knocking. When it does, you do what Joseph did. You run away. 
And, and sometimes, quite literally, you run away. When you feel tempted towards some sin, just get up. Go. Go for a walk. Go for a run. Go for a drive. Spend time in prayer. Go away from whatever situation. Just get away from it. Go spend time somewhere else. If you're tempted while you're studying, grab your laptop. Go to a coffee shop where you're in public. Just get up and go. Run away when temptation comes. You've got to understand, okay, Joseph was more righteous than probably any of us. And when temptation came in the same room with him, he didn't gird up and say, okay, let's fight. Let's duke this out. He ran away. When temptation comes, don't sit there and try to fight it. Get out of there. Run away. Do whatever you can to escape it. Now, for some of us, you, you can't literally run away. Whatever situation you're in, you can't get up and run, but you can metaphorically run away. You can go run to someone who can help you. So I have a couple accountability partners in my life. Uh, We've been accountability partners for many years. We have a standing rule with each other. We can call or text each other at any time of the day or night if we feel tempted. For me, that's how I run. Because I can't literally get up in the middle of the night and run out of my house. Cops would arrest me for that because i got kids at home. i got to stay in the house. But I can run to my friends and my brothers. I just pick up the phone. I text them or I call them right there. They pray for me. And that is incredibly helpful in fighting temptation. When temptation shows up, you've done your best to avoid it. But now it's right here. It's right on top of you. You run away. Either literally or metaphorically, you run to a friend who can pray for you. If you want to become a man or woman like Joseph, who God used to change the world, to rescue countless lives, you've got to follow his example. You've got to learn to say no to sin. Fortunately, Joseph gives us four really easy-to-apply strategies. All of us can do these right now, starting today in our own lives. We can tell our roommates about these. We can tell our friends about these. Most importantly, we can teach our children about these. If you want to be able to say no to sin, you've got to refuse to make excuses. You've got to remember God's blessings. You've got to recognize the cost of giving in. And you've got to remove yourself from the source. Now, as the men go back to prepare communion, I'm really excited we get to take communion on this particular morning. As the men go back to prepare, I would imagine that there's a lot of people in this room right now that, that feel pretty guilty. As we've been talking about sexual sin and the statistics are really clear, a lot of us are struggling and losing in the battle against sexual sin and temptation. And so right now you may be feeling really guilty, you may be feeling really ashamed because you've given in in the past to sexual sin. And so there's a couple things that I want to say to you if you feel guilty right now in this moment. The first is I want you to believe that you're not alone. You're not alone. I believe every single person in this room, just so you know, this is my working assumption, that every one of us have struggled and fallen to some form of sexual sin in the course of our lives. None of us are innocent of it. All of us have struggled. And I do believe the statistics that a large percentage of us are struggling and being owned by it on a regular basis right now. You are not alone. You're not alone in this battle. It's the first thing that I want you to know. Second thing I want you to know, you are not beyond forgiveness. No person on earth is beyond the hope of being forgiven by God. No one has sinned so badly that God can't forgive them. That's actually the the good news of the cross. That's what the cross is all about. 2,000 years ago, God's son, Jesus Christ, went up on the cross and he died for every one of your sins. 
Sins you committed yesterday, the sins you commit today, the sins you'll commit tomorrow, already done 2,000 years ago. He says I died for all sins, not just the small sins, but the big sins too, even the the addictive sins, even the marriage-ending kind of sins, even the really shameful sins that you hope no one ever knows about. Jesus paid for them all on the cross so that God could give you forgiveness as a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve forgiveness. It's a free gift to sinners like us. God offers to forgive you and cleanse you and make you his child now and forever. And all you have to say is, yes, I am a sinner. I am guilty. I am ashamed of what I have done. But God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins so that you could forgive me, cleanse me, and give me eternal life. Thank you. You are never beyond the hope of forgiveness. And that's what we get to celebrate in communion this morning. That's what communion is all about. That's why I'm so glad that it's this particular sermon, this sermon that could, could mount so much guilt on our shoulders and make us feel so ashamed because so many of us have, have fallen to this sin that Joseph overcame, good for him. We've fallen so many times, we might feel so guilty about that. And then there's communion to remind us that God, he's already taken care of it. Our sin didn't surprise him, didn't shock him. He didn't wake up one day and think, oh my gosh, look at what he did. No, he, he always knew about it. That's why he sent his son 2,000 years ago to die for our sins, to pay for all of them so that we could be forgiven. In communion, we celebrate that Jesus died for us. We remember, we give thanks. And so I invite every person in this room who has believed the gospel, if you have said yes to God's offer of eternal life, doesn't matter whether you go to this church, whether you're part of this denomination, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, I invite you to celebrate communion. As the men come forward, as they pass the elements, I'd ask you, if you're a believer, to spend this time and give thanks to God. That there's no sin you have ever committed that is so great that it shocked God or that it prevented God from forgiving you. Give thanks that Jesus died for all of your sins to cleanse you and give you eternal life. Let's take this time and give thanks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, this morning we remember. We remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We remember that he who was innocent and perfect and never did anything evil in his entire life That out of love, he freely chose to take all of our sin upon himself and suffer the punishment that we deserved. We remember and praise you that your son gave his body and his blood, his spirit so that we might be forgiven. We remember and praise you, Lord, that, that you have accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. You have forgiven us freely because of the death of your son and you've given us eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus that as he rose from the dead so we will too one day and Lord God we come before you this morning people who are guilty 
We, we are ashamed of the things that we have done, Lord. We know better. We know we should not have given in, and yet we did. And, and Lord, we feel guilty about that, so we come before you grateful and, and blown away that you have freely taken care of all of our guilt, that you placed it on your Son. I pray, for, Father, for every person in this room right now who who is feeling overwhelmed by guilt, who is feeling ashamed of what they have done. I pray especially for those who right now they are caught up in sin. It's become an addiction in their lives and they don't know how to say no. I pray, Father, that right now you would convince them that sin is never unavoidable, that there is always hope. There is always the possibility of overcoming sin and walking in righteousness. There is always hope because your son, Jesus Christ, is so powerful in our lives. He can overcome any sin, any addiction. He can lead us and grow us in righteousness. Every one of us in this room can become a person like Joseph, used by you to impact the world for eternity. We pray, Lord, take our lives, grow us in grace, grow us in truth. Help us to become lights to the world, not of judgment, not of harshness, but of love. Help us to tell the world about the love of Jesus Christ that sets us free from our slavery to sin. In the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. This is Matt Morton. I'm here with Blake Jennings, and we are going to talk about your sermon from Genesis 39. Uh, You and Brian talked about that passage yesterday, and it tells the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And you particularly uh, centered on the issue of temptation and, and more specifically the issue of sexual temptation which is an enormous issue in our culture. It's, it's a huge problem and a huge struggle, I know, for many of those who are listening. And one of the challenges that emerges when we talk about sexual temptation in our culture that I, I want to ask you to address as we start is that, you know, it's easy to believe that if I create the right safeguards in my life, maybe an internet filter, or I just don't go to the wrong part of town or to the wrong types of stores, I can avoid sexual temptation. Uh, And what we're finding as we talk to people is that while that was true, perhaps 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago, that's really not the case anymore. We are so saturated with sexual temptation because of the internet, because of the presence of smartphones everywhere, that it's often nearly impossible to avoid it. Um, So to a person that feels frustrated by that and feels that they can't get away from that source of temptation, Blake, how would you respond to that problem? Well, you're feeling what Joseph felt, because that's precisely the environment that Joseph is in, in the passage in Genesis 39. If you look at the details, Potiphar's wife comes after Joseph day after day. So there's, he's not getting any break from temptation. And at the climax of the temptation, when she really comes after him physically, he's actually doing his job. He, he had no choice but to be there. He, he could not neglect his duties. And so I think that when we look at our society, we, we realize that um, just by the, the way that things have progressed, we're living in Joseph's reality. So sexual temptation is never far away. It is actually helpful to 
realize that and kind of get over that hump a little bit. Because as long as you believe that, well, I can just tweak my environment so that I'm not exposed to it, you're going to be frustrated. I, I don't think that's possible right. anymore in, in America. Now, there's things that you can do. I think for a lot of us, we've found uh, some helpful tools on our computers, helpful tools on smartphones. There's programs like Covenant Eyes as an accountability logging program. So it sends any website you've been to on your computer to a accountability partner, X3 Watch, just X3 Watch. Uh, has some software for both computers and phones that do the same thing. It's not filtering, just sending reports to accountability partners. Ever Accountable for Android devices works similarly. All of those are helpful. None of those are perfect. And so you just have to recognize that. You can defeat all of them, and even at their best, they're going to let things slide by. And even if you do great with one device, there's other devices everywhere. I mean, the Internet is is truly becoming ubiquitous in our lives, and so we can't filter it everywhere. So do what you can to try to limit temptation, but recognize that's the world that you live in. So because of that, it's extremely important that you put into practice the the habits, the four habits that we saw in Joseph's life that we talked about yesterday. And it's also important that, and, and Matt, you and I have talked about this a lot before, because we live in a world where temptation is always going to be present, don't just focus on avoiding temptation, focus also on doing good things. That's one of the traps that I think particularly people caught up in temptation really forget is that life isn't so much about what you avoid. It's about the good stuff that you do. So be part of a Bible study, serve in the church, be growing into leadership, have fun with your friends, have hobbies that you enjoy, exercise, do positive things that can help you focus on on righteous things that are a blessing to you rather than just always focusing on trying to avoid this temptation. Right. And I think one of the things that uh, we often forget even about Joseph is that he was, it wasn't like he was in a job that he had voluntarily chosen. In other words, mm-hmm. he couldn't just quit and go take another job. He was, he was essentially a prisoner mm-hmm. and he was placed in Potiphar's house. And one of the things that's so great about his story is it's clear that when that moment of temptation comes, Joseph is responding based on values that are already right. really yeah, deep within him. He was ready for it. Yeah, he's ready for it. He's been prepared. And, and in fact, when you hear the reasoning for why he doesn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, it has a lot to do with his relationship with Potiphar, the trust that he's been given, and then his relationship with God. And mm-hmm. so, like you said, he doesn't simply see it as an issue of avoiding something that is bad or wrong or dirty, but actually it's an issue of... Uh, in order to relate appropriately to God and others, I cannot um, look at or take another man's wife, and mm-hmm. that that would be sinful. So he has these deep within him, and I think that's uh, a really good thing for those of us who are parents mm-hmm. to remember mm-hmm. that, um, you know, when I was a kid and when you were a kid, which has been a while back, it was, it was probably... <laughs> as long as in, Brian. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> in some ways, it was... It was a simpler time. There was not the internet. Uh, in order to find pornography, for example, one had to go to a seedy part of town or go to a bookstore and actually buy it, and you'd experience shame. It's a lot different now, and our kids are exposed, we're finding at much, much younger ages, potentially, mm-hmm. to pornography. Uh, you cannot simply assume that they'll be okay in this area of sexuality until they are 13, 14, 15. Um, what we're seeing is that you really need to have those kinds of begin having those kinds of conversations with them about 
the biblical basis for healthy sexuality and godly sexuality. You need to start those when they're five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you have to be graphic or detailed, but just the beginning understanding that your body belongs to God. Uh, The basic differences between men and women are designed by God and that there's a certain sacredness to the way that you've been created that isn't intended to be violated by Mm -hmm. an unhealthy sexuality. So I think that's real critical. And I don't know if you want to weigh in on that at all, Mm -hmm. but I I know as a dad who has uh, two daughters in elementary school and then a son just under that, I'm, I'm finding that we're already having to begin to think about those issues at a much younger age than I think uh, my parents or grandparents needed to start thinking right. about it. Right. I, I think that we as parents should assume that our children are going to see something pornographic by seven, eight, nine years old. Now, that won't happen for all children, but statistically, it's 10 to 15 percent, I think, by by eight years old. So that could be your child, uh, exposure through a friend, something at school, something at, at a relative's house. In which they may not tell you about. And, and that's, yeah, that's really the key. I, I think that as parents, if we can talk about it proactively and help our children understand, at some point you will see this. And, and when you see this, the important thing is to just come talk to me about it. You're not in trouble. It's it's going to be okay, and and we want to get to talk to you about that. So I think that, like you're saying, if you if parents can be on the front end of it, talk about it in age appropriate ways. But the most important thing is help your children understand they're they're not in trouble if somebody shows them this. And, and the important thing is to come talk to you. You you want to be the one who gets to interact in their lives. But to do that, you, you just got to assume they're going to see it. So get out in front of it. So when they do see it, they come to you and you get to continue to talk through w- with them about it. Right. And there's a, there's a great set of resources that I know have been helpful to my wife and me, as we've talked with our kids. It's a book series called The Story of Me. And it's actually several books. Uh, and they begin at a level that is age appropriate, actually, for those who are three to five, mm-hmm. um, just discussing some real basic concepts about who we are, how God made us, the way that our, our bodies are made. And then they advance from there for those five to eight and then eight to 11 and then 12 to 14 uh, and discuss these issues of sexuality from a biblical perspective, because actually it's really true that kids make decisions about how they will respond and use their bodies uh, long before you actually have a real detailed conversation with them about sexuality. Mm -hmm. They watch how you understand uh, the way that you treat one another as a husband and wife. They watch that. Uh, They watch the way that you treat them. They listen to your value system. And much like Joseph, they're internalizing all these values from the time that they are very young. And so the earlier that we can begin as parents to think about those issues, the better. Because again, it's not any longer where you can wait till they're 14, 15 and sit down and have one conversation or toss a book on their bed and expect that that's going to Mm -hmm. fix the issue. You really need to be thinking about these issues of sin and temptation and sexuality all the way through. Right. Right. While we're on the subject of books, you've mentioned before um, a, a resource that you find very useful for anybody who's trying to learn how to really uh, fight back against temptation. Yeah, there's a great book by Erwin Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R, and it's called Getting to Know, Getting to Know, N-O, uh, How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit, I think is the subtitle. Uh, just a great book that deals not only with the external uh, 
issues surrounding temptation, but also the issues of the heart. Um, a lot of what you talked about, that mm-hmm. uh, temptation often springs up from an ungrateful heart, or, or it often springs up when we begin to believe there's some excuse. God hasn't given me everything I deserve. Um, and then I begin to make excuses for my sin, and I fall into a pattern. And uh, I felt it was a really helpful book from two directions. One, to recognize your uh, temptation springs really primarily from a failure to honor and worship God appropriately. Mm-hmm. But then secondly, uh, the issue that it brought up that was very helpful is you're not defined by your sin and your temptations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really key. Like you said, that it's very easy to get into a, a mindset of saying my spiritual life revolves around trying to avoid these temptations. Mm-hmm. As soon as we do that, in a sense, we begin to lose the battle because really your spiritual life revolves around knowing and following Jesus. Mm -hmm. The more that we fill our minds and hearts with the things of Christ, the less sin and temptation will become appealing to us. Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent point. I think it's so helpful for people to have a book like that that can walk them through some of the deeper issues and recognize that often sexual sin like lust or pornography or, or going too far with a boyfriend or girlfriend, it often springs out of deeper things that if you'll address those deeper things proactively, you can actually see temptation become less frequent and, and often less severe in your life. For a lot of people, pornography is less about the, the sex and more about an escape from some stress, some depression, some loneliness, something going on that's deeper. And sexual sin provides a, a moment of relief from whatever that, that stressor or that pain is in your life. And so just dealing with the sexual temptation won't ultimately get to where it comes from. So I, I yeah, highly recommend that book and highly recommend talking to other people about those deeper issues. And, and let me share a few resources. If you, if you find that you're just really struggling with sexual sin, um, a few different things that you can do. First of all, I encourage you to talk to a a mentor, uh, an older friend in your life, a parent, a pastor, um, somebody who can help you to think through um, why you are giving in, um, help you to, to maybe surface some of those deeper issues that you can be working on. Uh, that can always be helpful in our lives. Uh, sin is stronger when we're silent about it. So if we're willing to talk to somebody about it, it can be really helpful. Second, if you find that sexual sin is becoming an addiction for you, so by addiction, I mean that you just, you can't say no. Even if you want to say no, you just, you really can't can't say no. It's it's happening regularly in your life. Uh, we have a program called Celebrate Recovery. It meets at the Southwood campus Tuesdays at 7 p.m. It has separate groups for men and women. Uh, it's it's uh, very confidential and it's designed um, kind of around a 12-step program model, but but a, a Christian version of it. It's it's going to help you actually getting to what you were saying, Matt, to to begin to once again really worship the Lord and walk with Him as you begin to recover from that area of addiction in your life. So really recommend that you check out Celebrate Recovery at Southwood on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. We've got a lot of people in there because this is such a common issue. Good. Yeah. So, and and that just highlights in all of this, the key that uh, struggling with temptation is universal. Everybody Mm -hmm struggles with temptation. And I think what separates those in the long run who consistently give in from those who make progress and walk with the Lord is often one's willingness to admit their struggle and seek help. And so uh, that's really what we're encouraging. If this is an ongoing struggle uh, here at Grace, you can talk with one of the pastors. We can recommend a counselor to you. Celebrate Recovery is a huge help. Uh, But we would encourage you, just as uh, we see in the life of Joseph, 
don't be afraid to acknowledge the temptation and then find a way to flee from it and seek uh, a new pattern and a different pattern for your life. So uh, we will uh, stop there as I know we're about out of time. Blake, thank you for your uh, weighing in on these issues today. And uh, you can always find more information, more resources on our website at grace-bible.org, as, along with the sermon audio and uh, any other uh, resources that might be helpful to you.